This episode contains intense thematic elements. Listener discretion is advised. This is Episode 2, Developing Empathetic Society. I caught up with my friend Indy Jen Fisher after her recent trip to Rwanda. A filmmaker and producer, mother and educator, now busy writing her first novel, as we open, Jen shares with us a clip from her 2012 feature film, Smuggled. This is the Language of Creativity Podcast. If you practice your English with me, I leave you alone all night. Okay? What? I only speak English. I no understand. I no understand. Muy bien. ¿Qué significa eso? Que yo no entiendo. Es todo lo que necesito. La gente me habla y yo le digo I no understand. Y la gente me deja en paz. Y todos están contentos. En serio, vamos. Está bien. My name is Miguel. My name is Miguel. ¿Y qué significa eso? Que tu nombre es Miguel. ¿Cómo se dice esto es aburrido? This no fun. It's like being transported back in time listening to this. <laughs> so that was your film, yeah, Smuggled, that... from 2012? Yes, that's our feature film from 2012, yeah. Well, welcome to the... Cre- <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to break the ice. Yes. Welcome to the Language of Creativity podcast. Today, my guest in the studio is Indy Jen Fisher. Hi. <laughs> You're a filmmaker, you and Ramon. Yes, Ramon Hamilton. I am. We have our production company, Think Ten Media Group. So we create films there, and then we both do lots of other creative stuff. Um, I was a musician first, so music is a big part of my life. Recently, I've been writing a lot more, so it's been good for me to kind of claim that and step into that. And nice to confession, take a break from filmmaking. It's really all intensive and can be consuming and really challenging. So I am, I say that, but I'm producing a short right now and a music video soon and um, (laughs) (laughs) just got asked to maybe location manage on something. So So how did you get the nickname Indie Jen? Well, a friend of mine who I met through the Santa Clarita Valley Film Festival that I founded and ran for seven years, but it's been closed for six years now. um, He was telling me, you got to get on Twitter. And this was before Twitter was really anything. And so I had to get on Twitter, apparently. And so I went on Twitter and I had to pick a handle. And I just was like, Indie Jen Fisher. And then he wrote me, he's like, how was that even available? How did you do that? That's awesome. That's so you. Um, And really, I chose it because um, my production company and myself, we've remained very independent to a fault. Maybe some people would say, but it's been really important to us to be independent, um, Mm -hmm. to find ways to create the work we want to create, to not waver and kind of the type of world we want to build, life we want to live. So Indy Jen Fisher felt really right. Like um, 
So it was just it was just a good fit and it was available. So that was cool. Well, you know, that's the funny thing, because you need your media presence to be memorable and short. And often those two things are, you know, gobbled up at the earliest. Yeah, I knew I did it right. I went to an event in um, L.A. and it was uh, Emily Best of Seed and Spark, who I really admire what she's doing. She was talking and then she it was question and answer. And so I had asked a question. She's like, wait, who, who are you? Introduce yourself. I was like, oh, I'm Indy Jen Fisher. And she's like, ah, <laughs> you're Indy Jen Fisher. Oh, my gosh. So she knew me from the Twitter sphere. So that was kind of exciting to have someone be like, wait, I'm so glad you're here because I love your voice on Twitter. Um, I'm less engaged now than I used to be on Twitter then. But I think that's true for a lot of people. But at the time, it was really um, the way I built relationships with other filmmakers because I live far from LA, given traffic, and I had little children at home. So I wasn't able to go into events a lot. So Twitter was a good way for me to remain relevant and engaged and learning about what was going on in the indie film scene get to know companies like Seed and Spark and other women filmmakers, especially that were really trying to build something new at the time. This was probably probably three or four years ago. So it worked out really well to like not be able to physically go somewhere as often as I needed to, but to be able to really engage. Mm-hmm. So so it's been a while since you've listened to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. But like, it's like I'm transporting myself back in time because it's been so long. I mean, I don't, I don't watch it anymore. At the time, at other creators know this when you make something, you spend so much time on it, you get to a point where you can't watch it anymore because it's just, you've spent so much time on it. So it's been a long time since I've revisited it or heard it or watched it or anything. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. Well, and the production is unique because it takes place in a very enclosed location. Mm -hmm. Most of the movie takes place like in between the cargo compartment of a bus, Mm -hmm. which was a very, very small space. Beautifully shot, by the way. Thank you. That could have gone really wrong (laughs) from a cinematography standpoint. Yeah, it it, it was. And it was a big challenge. We... um, we kind of hit this snag right before we filmed and the cinematographer we wanted to work with, we no longer had the money to pay. Um, but we had everything else lined up. We had the location built. Like we built this, a friend of ours built this compartment for us and we had the actors, we had everything set up and we thought if we don't shoot it this summer, it's it's just not going to happen. So because our cinematographer really wished he could do it and we had another friend who's a award-winning cinematographer does things like TV shows now and stuff. They came in and did like a crash course cinematography and lighting course with my husband, with my partner. Wow. And like set up lights and did different lighting tests of like the different things. He, so he really had it shot listed. And then they were like, "There's here's where the lights need to be for all these scenes for it to work. And so he shot the film, which wasn't planned, but it was just the only way to make it happen. Um, and so... Yeah, so he would love you saying that. <laughs> you know, he did a really good job because small locations are extremely challenging. And it was lit well enough to kind of give you that sense of, you know, they're in the dark. Um, but the other things that I noticed is that the acting was superb. Yeah, and that was key. When we were casting, we knew that that would make or break it. And that that was one of the things like we wouldn't have shot it if we hadn't been able to cast the right people. We would have waited because... It's just them for most of the film. So they have to be able to do it. They have to be able to do it in two languages, um, you know, and so and they had to have chemistry, you know, and they really did. Like they really did get very close. How old was the kid that played? He was, I think, nine or ten at the time. And he hadn't really done much acting before then. 
Um, but when he came in, um, there was certain scenes that we did, of course, for the audition. And he was the only one who was able to, you know, the reader is sitting across from you, but he was able to pretend like the body was on the f- floor and like he would move and touch this person that wasn't there. And that's when we knew like, this is the, the person that needs to do this role. And it was amazing too, because I think four kids showed up and we thought, when we saw we only had four kids showing up for the audition, we thought, we're not going to cast this film. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> but Ramses was incredible, and his mom was so easy to work with. Um, like, she was so supportive of the project. Um, it was a really small crew, which I think um, worked to our advantage because the intimacy you need for a film like this was there. It wasn't mm-hmm. this big crew that made people feel intimidated or like they were on a set. It was really this small intimate group of people telling this story and so I think that also worked in our favor it's kind of an indie film or a creativity cre- creativity hack to kind of take the things that other people might see as obstacles mm-hmm. like not having money for a big crew and using them on your favor like yeah so when it seems like you kind of designed the script to play to your strengths as independent filmmakers yeah we did we we backtracked we wanted to make something um so we said what do we have access to and we had access at the time to kind of this giant open space. Um, and then we thought, okay, and we need a story that's not very many actors. And then we wanted something we cared about, something we could connect with. So a lot of this was drawn from personal stories of people we knew. Um, and a lot of it also drew from Ramon's relationship with his mother. So there were a lot of personal elements in it. Um that I think made the realism of the film apparent. We've actually at screenings had people say like, how did you get in the bus with them? Like they think it's documentary. We're like, no, this is a narrative film. Like at first when they only see a little bit of it, they'll be like, how were you in there with them? We're like, no, 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 this is all fictional. Wow. But based on, you know, real stories of people we knew. um, And it's so relevant still today. You know, I don't think we thought it would remain so relevant so many years later, but um, it tells the story of a mother and a son they're being smuggled across the border and underneath a bus. Um, and it's just this, what I love is that it's really though you take the smuggling out, it's the story of a mother and a son. And that's what I think a lot of people relate to when they watch it is like, this is a story that we can all understand either, even if we're not moms, we've been someone's child. So it kind of speaks to people, I think on multiple levels. So yeah, we really did say like, what do we have available and how can we make use of it to make this work we had a toddler at the time and i was seven and a half months pregnant oh Um, and because he was also in the film and we don't have any family nearby it meant our toddler was with us all the time um so it was just i don't know really special i think in that way too because we have this as a family thing we just kind of all did and made it work and um it was a special special film and we still talk to everybody we worked on with that film and yeah, it means a lot to us still. I don't think we expected to have the legs and the longevity that it had. Um, it was a very hot topic at the time. So we got a lot of interest at film festivals and a lot of media coverage. Um, what I find the valuable aspect of the film, which is what we were shoot- aiming for when we made it, was we're not trying to take a stance about this topic, about immigration in this film. It's not the goal of our company. Think 10 Media Group is It's about t- thinking. It's about humanizing people that are maybe not often humanized well, people that are often stereotyped. Um, So the goal is not to have someone come away from it and say, I think this or believe this 
about immigration. It's to have them think about the people. Um, we always say it's not a film about an issue. It's a film about a mother and son. Yeah. And people walk away from it with that understanding. I'm not trying to change anyone's mind on the topic. I just want people to go, oh, there are real people behind the issues that get so politicized. It's not just a vacuum. It's not just this arbitrary thing, but it's real people. Um, so that in then even the way that we talk about an issue or we talk about um, a political stance is, is more human. We're aware of that. We did a film series that related to the topic of mass incarceration and solitary confinement. And a big thing is, is that language and the way you talk about people. And in working directly with people who had been incarcerated, it really helped me understand the importance of language. Like in saying formerly incarcerated, not ex-con, not, um, I can't even think of the word that's usually used because it's so erased from my mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but there's a certain connotation that goes along with language and a load of, of, of baggage. Because I think the assumption is is that everyone who's in jail is just kind of knee-jerk reaction to think, well, they deserve to be there. Right. And um, really, you know, I hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to that issue. And when you were sharing with me about your film, when I watched the first episode, you know, it really kind of made me think about maybe some questions that I hadn't pondered before, because I don't personally know anyone who's incarcerated. Right. That isn't a part of my circle. Right. And so I was listening to uh, Krista Tippett uh, was interviewed mm-hmm. on a, another podcast, and oh, that was really that must cool, have been cool to have the <laughs> yeah. tables turn on her. And she was talking about um, how a large part of her work is uh, finding bridge people, mm-hmm. and uh, she defined that as someone who is able to sort of gently bring a story into someone's awareness. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you are certainly a big driver for that in your work and your life i think you know just you as a person sort of emanate this like compassion and friendliness that is open to everyone around you and that's one of the cool things about getting to know you well that thank you it's such a compliment and i think compassion is the key word i mean um i'm an empath and sometimes that can feel debilitating but i've tried to take that and make it empowering and try to live with a compassionate view and open that up and it can be hard because I think with the whole, especially we worked with a lot of people who had been incarcerated on that project. I think um, when we finally added it up, like we had our cast and crew had spent a collective 40 years um, incarcerated and seven of those in solitary confinement. So it was a very authentic storytelling process and filmmaking process, unlike anything else I'd ever done. And also pushed me as an individual to rethink my own assumptions about people. And also I found that later on translating into my own life when I would run up against challenges or be hurt by someone in a really intense way and to have to pull in that forgiveness um, and that compassion and go, if I'm going to make creative work that encourages people to view the world in a compassionate way, to not write somebody off because of something they did in their past that they have served their time for, I have to live that then. Like I can't just create that work and not be willing to live that. So I've had, I've found that my projects, my creative work has pushed me harder (laughs) in a personal way to be more forgiving and loving than maybe even I thought I could be because it was like, it's not fair of me to put 
a certain, I didn't feel, to put a certain creative um, work out there or even a creative persona and not be able to go toe-to-toe with that in my own life. And so um, it's interesting to me the way that like your life drives your creativity, but then sometimes your creativity kicks back into your life and makes you do some personal growth work that maybe (laughs) you wouldn't have done otherwise or that you wouldn't have um, worked so hard at otherwise. Wow. You know, I've known you for what, four years or something like that. But the thing that strikes me is we've never talked about you as an empath. Mm. And I, I identify as an empath as well. And for my audience who maybe isn't familiar with that term, can you describe what that is and maybe a little bit of what that's like? Maybe. Um, <laughs> I think empaths, um, well, to be empathetic versus sympathetic is to, um, you don't, when you're sympathetic, you maybe feel bad for someone. When you're empathetic, you're feeling, you're working towards feeling what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. So empaths, we often feel what other people are experiencing. I mean, we can't know we do, but we, we think we do, or we mm-hmm. think we begin to. It's physical. Yeah. We think we begin to do that. And, um, Right now I'm writing a project called The Leeches and um, it deals with the topic of genocide and I just went to Rwanda um, and I spent two weeks in Rwanda and talk about a challenging place for an empath. I went to six different memorial sites, genocide memorial sites, um, and I cried a lot. <laughs> like It was really, really challenging, um, but really important, um, really important to do. And I think sometimes even for non-empaths, when there's a lot, when it feels like there's a lot of negativity in the world, it's so easy to shut down. And what I'm trying to do with my creativity is use my creativity to keep me from needing to shut down, Hmm. Um, to take all that that's hard to hold and to turn around and put it back out in a way that helps other people move through struggles, move through topics that are hard to approach and not just shut down because it can be easy to feel like that's the answer. I can't I can't handle this. I have relatives that can't talk to each other because of the politics, because of this, that. I just want to shut down. But then we also shut down from our loved ones. We shut down from our kids. We shut down from like the beauty yeah, of life. Yeah, it's not a selective shutdown. Yeah, like, like if you're shut off, you're off, yeah. you know? And there's a lot of beauty in the world still. And so I think um, learning to use your creativity to kind of like, even if you're not doing it professionally, even if you do do it for you, you sketch for you, you play the music for you, but using that to help you move through the challenges of these things, through all of the feelings and the emotions, um, can help us not need to shut down, can help us like find ways to engage and talk and like get somewhere and and see the beauty that's still left in the world and see the good and you know, so I think it can be a powerful tool and and so being in this situation where I, I was like emotionally really like overstimulated often. Yeah. Um, but then having my creative practice, my writing, my notebook, I have three sitting next to me right now, three different notebooks, um, was important. You know, it was important to be able to do that and to process and to move through that um, and use creativity to help me do that. This podcast is sponsored by iCreateSound. Whatever spot you're at in your audio production process, iCreateSound is here to get you through it. Now offering the Artist Advisement Session. A 30-minute call may be all it takes to get your project moving again. On the web at www.icreatesound.com.
Now back to our interview with Indy Jen Fisher. You booked a plane ticket and you went straight to Rwanda, which was the um, country that had one of the largest genocides in recent history. Yeah. Give a little backstory on Rwanda. Sure. So um, when I was there, it was the 24 year anniversary from when the genocide happened. It ran from April um, 7th, 1994 through June, July. Um, But in about the first month, 800,000 people were slaughtered. Almost a million people yeah. in one month. In about one month. Um, and the the memorial, the Kigali Genocide Memorial Museum that I went to, that alone is a mass grave to 250,000 people. So our podcast is based in Santa Clarita. That's like the entire city of Santa Clarita just gone. Oh my God. Um, so it's a very, it's a nation that has been through a lot it has been through a lot. Um, and yet it is one of the cleanest, safest. And I flew there from New York City and even cleaner, safer than New York City. I mean, one of the cleanest, safest countries I've ever visited. And I've visited 20 now, 21. Um, oh, wow. So it was incredible. It was just very different than I expected it to be. Um, and people there have been through a lot. Um, and yet they, they see the world differently. I think that's the main thing. I mean, because of what they've been through, they see the world very differently. Um, and a lot of the stark, good, bad, um, view of the world doesn't exist, um, or didn't seem as apparent because people have experienced so much and, um, there were people who killed other people that also then saved someone's life, you know, for whatever reason. And I think it's this idea that not everybody is good or all evil. Um, One woman I met, it was eerie for my book too, because my book is not about Rwanda. So my book is kind of, I've been studying the topic of genocide for more than a decade. I was in Cambodia in 2003. It's really where the project started, even though I didn't know it would lead me where I am. Um, And I was at a, um, there was also a genocide in Cambodia and I was at a torture site um, from that genocide. And that was when I thought I have to make something about this. And I thought it was going to be a documentary. And then I started with this film, that film. And finally, one day I realized what it was. And again, it's a story of a mother. <laughs> I'm a mom. It comes into my work a lot. So really, The Leeches is the story of a mother who wakes up, realizes she's had a baby, has no idea where her baby is and the backdrop is that her nation is engulfed in a genocide. Um, and she has to find her child. That's it. Like that's her goal. And so the book really is her journey to try to find her baby. Um, and her baby's name is hope. Um, very significant. And, um, she goes on this journey and I've kind of gone on a parallel journey with her through the research I've done through this trip to Rwanda, it was the longest I'd spent away from my kids. I was away from my children for 18 days. I hadn't done that before. They're six and eight. Um, so I went on a journey too. And um, my journey's like hers in that, and I hadn't realized this before I went, I find myself going, there was a Holocaust. 
1945, everyone said never again. And then I can count on more than one hand the times again and again and again. This has happened in the world. And this is why I had to go to Rwanda because I can't understand why. It's something that all of humanity says, this shouldn't happen again, but it happens again. Um, And I'm trying to understand it. And this is the same thing that's happening with Shell. Like when she um, is knocked out in this hospital, it hasn't started. When she comes up, she awakens in this hospital and now her nation is engulfed in this and she's trying to understand it. Like, how did this country, how did my homeland end up here? And where is my daughter and is she safe? So um, she and I together are on this journey to understand this really intense concept or not even concept, this intense reality that happens. And I'm trying to do it in a way that is accessible to my audience in a way that other people don't just shut off because one of the things I've read is part of the why this happens over and over is because we do shut off. Like literally psychologists say your brain can't handle so much trauma. So when someone says 6 million people died in the Holocaust, your brain goes, that's not true because that number is too big for me to process. Um, So in making the story more personal and smaller, maybe we can begin to access it and understand the ways in which we can foster hope and goodness in our lives or foster something that can sow the seeds for mass tragedies and mass atrocities. So you don't want to do a practice one, you just want to go? Okay, so, and here we go. So you're really active in your community uh-huh. and yeah. that's like one of the biggest inspirations about knowing you. And uh, I have realized that to change the world, you can't go to the top and just, we're going to change it all. It's just because that's just not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> but I have noticed that sometimes just a smile Mm-hmm. goes a long way to make somebody's life just a little bit better. And, you know, really taking that extra step to, hey, how is your book going? You know, hey, how did that job interview go? You know, hey, you know, it's good to see you today. You know, whatever it is, you know, I feel like the people, <laughs> it's like, who are the people in your neighborhood? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and it's cool because, you know, this little coffee shop that we go to has become sort of like this, you know, community hub I want to talk about your community because you run a women's uh, artist group. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And you also mentor other filmmakers. You and Ramon teach Mm -hmm. and you do piano lessons. You've also taught children's music. And it seems like a very important role in your life. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it is important to me. Um, And it's really accessible. I think people don't always, they think I've got to go do some major thing. And it really is as much as just like, saying hello to people mm-hmm. and acknowledging the people you see every day. Um, but yeah, community is, it's a way of life for me. I don't know if I grew up um, a preacher's kid 
and my mm. mom was like the mom like our house was the house where all the stray kids went you know like <laughs> my mom was that person and it's funny because when I was in Rwanda um my mom came and was with the kids and um, got to know a lot of the women in my community that I'm close with and they all were like I understand you so much more now because you're you're cut from the same cloth my mom does this so I think that's why it's maybe easier for me to do than it is for other people because it was just modeled for me but it's always been important and I think for me out in the Santa Clarita Valley which is a very standard suburb for people that don't know it. It's not a place where a lot of people know their neighbors necessarily. It's been on many TV shows (laughs) intentionally or unintentionally. And not necessarily to a lot of people I think an easy place to build community. But we started here by building a film festival, starting a film festival and I see this mirrored now with um, the women's creative group I have which is called an atelier and that it was kind of like if your community doesn't offer the thing that you need then you build it. And maybe a lot of people don't think that way or think that's too hard. Atelier, what is that? An atelier. So this I pulled from, I don't know if anyone's watched Chef's Table on Netflix, but I'm, I'm like a, a cooking show junkie. Um, <laughs> this is how I wind down from my intense like genocide and prison work is like <laughs> I watch cooking shows. Um, but there's uh, Dominique Crane was a chef um, featured in, I think, the first season of Chef's Table on Netflix. And she refers to her kitchen, she's French, as an atelier. And she's like, it's a place where people come together to create, a place where people brainstorm, a place where people support each other. I don't know if that's the technical French definition, probably not, but that was her definition. And it really resonated with me um, as this is what I want. And so um, I had a couple friends in my really close, like that live near me in Valverde that um, I already knew were creative. And then I, you know, in their in their profession, and then there were a couple other people I wanted to meet. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to tell them I'm starting this atelier and I'm going to invite them. And it was scary. Like, I don't know. There were two women that I hardly knew at all. Um, and it was so scary to ask strangers like, hey, I have this idea. We're going to meet once a month and be creative together. <laughs> okay. You know, um, but yeah, and you are the kind of person who who does come up to people <laughs> in the coffee shop and say, "Hey, I noticed that you have, you know, your kid. You know, I have some T-shirts your size. You know, <laughs> if if you need them." And <laughs> yes, this is me. So, and if, that is the opposite of Ramon. Yes, yes, he, yeah, <laughs> introvert to the T. But yeah, this is me. If you see me, like, if I'm in your community, no matter where you live, and there is a need, and I can meet it, I'm gonna come up to you, stranger, and meet the need if I can. It's just. <laughs> So don't think it's weird. Yeah, and it isn't because it's you. I mean, that's the cool thing. But yeah, um, so the women that come, uh, you know, where are they at in their artistic lives? Um, it's different for everyone. And it's funny, the woman I was most intimidated to reach out to, um, it was like at the start of 2017. She was like, oh my gosh, my New Year's resolutions were to be creative again and to get to know you better. Like literally, I wrote this down. <laughs> I was like, whoa. When I brag on Jen, <laughs> I'm not alone. <laughs> Just so, so you know. <laughs> so she has been, um, we all are moms. I think that's one thing that was um, brought us together. We were all moms um, and everyone was in a different place creatively and we all do different work. So one of us was getting her master's degree in social work and her creativity was um, sometimes beadwork, sometimes just crafts with her son, just for her own release. Mm-hmm. Another friend is an animator, graphic designer, animation instructor. Um, another woman in it. Um, there's kind of five people that were in it more regularly, so I'll speak of them. Um, she 
used to be in casting and now she Airbnb. So her creative outlet is really interior design. Oh, cool. Um, and then another woman uh, sings and acts. Mm-hmm. So, um, and yeah, during the course of our atelier, she was in a performance at Red Cat. It really did oh, help wow. spark her back into her creative practice. But I don't want people to think it was um, like an assignment. It was sort of, we did vision boards one time. Sometimes uh-huh. we just sat around and talked and drank tea um, or wine or whatever. And one time someone had a bunch of clay. So we were just sort of all playing with the clay as we talked. Um, that sounds like fun. Sometimes decorating cookies. I mean, it uh-huh. you know, didn't have to be like this thing, but you're getting to have other people say, I'm recognizing that you're creative. I'm here to support you. And you're setting aside a time. And you're setting aside a time. Which I think as a mom, especially, is so important. Yeah. Because I'm married and, you know, I'm male. So for me, if if I need to do something, if it's burning a hole in my brain, I go yeah. do it because, you know, oh, me, man, you don't go, you do, yeah. you know. And I've, you know, talked to you, I've, t- I've observed, you know, a lot of uh, families where it's really difficult as a mom to not feel guilty about taking even five minutes yes. to use the bathroom. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> Let alone say, I'm going to go for half a day and just shoot photos of whatever flowers or butterflies <laughs> yeah. strike my fancy because I need me time. <laughs> yeah. No, it's really hard and it's really important to claim it. And I think, um, I mean, I felt so guilty going to Rwanda, but I had mm. to I had to claim it and I had to be f- strong in the fact that my whole family would be better for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Why? I just want to expound on that yeah. because you and I talked before you went to Rwanda and I remember there was a lot of um, turmoil for you mm-hmm. in terms of uh, I'm going to be gone for a long time. Yeah. And I think one of the things that that you wrestled with was the cost. Mm-hmm. You wrestled with the being gone and, you know, also the perception that it's dangerous to travel mm-hmm. out of the country. Yeah. But why would you say that it is an investment in your family to invest in yourself? Looking back. Yeah. If we, I'm, I am the person that meets other people's needs. I do this very naturally, but then I started to feel lately I was running on fumes. Um, if I don't fill myself back up, I'm going to burn out. I don't have anything left for anyone else. Or there's the festering resentment underneath, and I don't mm. want that relationship with my children. Um, yeah. And I think when we have loud inner critics, our loved ones f- can become excuses, and then we resent them instead wow. of like facing our That's own important. fears um, and realizing this is actually about me being afraid. Um, and the book is very much something that's scary for me because when you work on a film, you're being creative with a bunch of other people it's not all yours right so if somebody doesn't like it they're not directly commenting on your work necessarily Uh, it's a group effort yeah that's very true but the novel lives and dies on your shoulders so there's nowhere (laughs) to hide you know yeah um and so it's scary um and it can be easy to come up with those excuses um instead of facing your own fear Um, Uh and really taking responsibility that like, this is about me being afraid. It's not about my kids. It's not about my partner. It's not about the money. It's not about X, Y, Z that is easier to place that on. And if anyone's ever had a parent or loved one that didn't, um, follow a dream Mm -hmm. and has experienced that personal resentment, then 
you can know like it really is important to take the you time you almost, need for yourself. I've heard, you know, friends of mine are like, I almost wish they just would have yeah. gone and, you know, been happy. Do the thing. Like, yeah. you know, buy us less toys or whatever it is that uh-huh. people say, like, because that happiness, you know, that happened. And I think for women, for me, it was important that it's modeled to my children mm-hmm. that women go travel for work. Women do things sometimes that are right. not right there and are not right there for them, um, that they can meet some of their own needs, that other people can meet their needs, their community can help meet their needs, and their dad can meet their needs. I can step like, up as a dad. Yeah. Yeah, and those times and trade-off, and, you know, I mean, I've struggled with what you're struggling with, too, that feeling of, like, you know, I work in music, and a lot of it is late and weekends mm-hmm. and things like that, and I've done the best to kind of balance my life the way I like it, but... Every once in a while, it's still you, you're running on these deadlines. It's the only way to get things done. You're creative. You the, the inspiration strikes, and you're going. and You're in the tunnel, and it, there is a sense of like lingering guilt that happens, where it's like, well, I wasn't there to tuck my kid in for bed. You know, yeah. I wasn't around. You know, and uh, you know, it's 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 interesting to reflect on the uh, reality that now women especially women who are busy and, you know, career focused are having that same dilemma as well. And, you know, balance is a huge issue because it's so easy to, because putting your art out is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. (laughs) It's so easy to get in this like, you know, American, uh, professional working like to-do list addict mode mm-hmm. of like well I gotta do this and I can't do I can't take a breath here because I gotta blah I gotta I gotta and then before you know it I mean you are running on fumes yeah uh, and add to that being a mom where you have demands from two kids and yeah. a role that you're playing as a wife and a mom and you know everything that that comes up you know oh well kids are sick from school well I gotta stay home well I gotta cancel my appointments I gotta and you know it's like how do you how do you even how do you even (laughs) (laughs) well I think a lot of it is um is breaking the rules and then making it okay for other people to break the rules how do you mean so when with Smuggle, we decided to self-distribute it. And one of the main ways was selling it to universities and setting up university screenings. Oh, and interesting. I was at home. Part of the reason we sold it this way was I was at home with two very little children at the time. Um, one of which I was still like physically feeding with my body. Right. So um, hard good, to go. Good good route. Yeah. Hard yeah. to go and be places. Medically, medically beneficial. <laughs> uh, hello, America. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Very important. It's what very convenient. What the actual convenient. fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very convenient too. But, um, and I remember I'm, and then a university called me back. We've been trying to reach this university. They call back the, the office line, which is our home. Um, and so I'm very professional. Think 10 media group. And I, I go out into the backyard because I'm trying to hide from my children. And I'm trying to sound super professional, make sure that, you know, she doesn't hear this woman on the other end does not hear my kids. And then my older son, who's like three, he comes outside and he yells, but he pooped everywhere. (laughs) And I'm just like, oh, man. So I'm like trying to seal this deal. You know, this is money that we need. And so I say to the woman, "Um, I'm sorry, I'm actually working from home today with my two small children. And we we just kind of had a diaper incident, and she took this huge breath. She was like, 
oh my God, I'm working at home today with my kids too and I'm dying to keep them quiet. And it was so nice. Like we could wow. both like cut through the facade, cut oh, through the bullshit and just be like, we're moms working from home and it's okay. <laughs> so like, and then the rest of our conversation, she can hear that I'm changing a diaper and I can hear that her kids are playing in the background and asking her for juice boxes. And yeah. Nobody died. You know, the yeah. work still got done and I didn't see her as less professional and she didn't see me as less professional. It was yeah. like, it's okay. <laughs> like, well, and this is the new reality. I mean, I think the workforce is changing and yeah. the old idea of an office is kind of like, I'm going to go get my yoke of oxen and yeah. <laughs> drive them through the field. You know, it's, it's outdated and it's yeah. changing quickly. And I'm meeting more and more people who solopreneur who freelance who you know take their work on the side or even if they're working for a company they will work remotely yes and uh it, it, you're right it is easier for dads to just be like i'm just i'm shutting the door yeah. you know i'm but you know as a mom you're always on and uh, i'm so glad that story came out because i think that's gonna be an inspiration for thousands of people <laughs> well and it's also good too to like the other thing we've been we realized at our home is because um, our kids were so close in age and I was nursing and all this stuff. The default was to ask mom. And so we started realizing right. that like I would be literally in another room doing something and they would be sitting next to their dad and they would still like yell at me in the other room. Like, and he would be like literally sitting next to them in the kitchen, which mm -hmm. is where the thing they want is. Mm -hmm. And so we started being like, no, 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 look, look, dad can open the milk what? and pour it. <laughs> like, Guess what? Because he's perfectly happy to do it. Yeah. You know? And I think there are some relationships where that's not the case. But right. I have a partner who will do the laundry, will do the dishes, sweeps the floor every night, will make food, doesn't mind these things at all. Mm -hmm. um, but the default was always like, I have to ask mom. But I've also noticed kids have radar. Yeah. It's like, you know, you may be doing nothing and they're playing happily. <laughs> and then the moment you get an important text or call, you know, all of a sudden it's like, what are you doing? Here, yeah, I need your help. You know, <laughs> right. it's like, oh, my goodness. Like, can you? Yeah. You and know. that's really true, too. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of resources have you had within your own community that you've cultivated to um, help also with that load of children? Yeah. So, I mean, I have neighbors that we barter babysit with. So that's something that's important. Um, also, sometimes since a couple of us do work from home and sometimes there's this isolation or your own workspace isn't working for you. So if our kids are at school, sometimes they'll be like, hey, can I just come work at your space today? I know you're working too and I'm not going to stop you from working, but I just need to get out of my own house. Mm -hmm. so super important. You'll make the coffee. I'll bring over some fruit and like wow. just have an, um, like another workspace or have like a colleague um, and you might ask each other a question here and there. Um, that's kind of nice when you're in isolation all the time and you're working. Well, I notice that, you know, most of us don't know our neighbors. Yeah. In this in this country, maybe in the Western world. I don't know how it is in Europe, but like it, it's really not uncommon to drive home and shut the garage door and just isolate and maybe even just turn on the TV. Yeah. You know, and um, you've sort of done the exact opposite. <laughs> well, and again, this was one of those things that happened out of, well, part of it is who I am, but part of it was that I live my life differently than other people. So when, um, when we just finished Smuggled, uh, we had lost a contract at the end of that year. So that was the other thing about shooting this movie that we were self-investing in. We just lost a contract that was the contract that like paid my salary. Um, and we had another baby coming and we were putting money into a film. Uh oh. So it was just like, <laughs> oh my gosh. And then we had to, you know, earn a living. So um, when the film was done and was doing film festivals, um, 
we were also, I was at home um, with a two-year-old and a nursing child. And it didn't make sense for me to, even with my Harvard master's degree, like any work I was going to do, like most of it was going to end up going to daycare. It just did not make sense um, for me not to be working from home. Hmm. And so we had to get new contracts for our film education work. We had to figure out how to sell our film and we were sharing one car at this point. So um, really lean living. So Ramon at this point, I think there was a time when he was out screening the film at festivals most of the time and teaching 25 film classes at like 10 different sites in a wow. week. Um, so I was at home a lot with two little people and did not know any other moms um, in my community. Um, so I was walking down at the park a lot. And people don't walk <laughs> here in Southern California anyway. Um, nobody walks in LA. And, you know, nobody, exactly. <laughs> and so I got to know my community, though. Like, and my kids stick out. They had this crazy curly hair and they're mixed race. So everybody like noticed my kids. And right across the street, literally the backyard across the street was a family with a son who was right between the ages of my kids. Oh, right cool. there. And we lived next to each other and Amazing. didn't know it. And she became one of my best friends, you huh. know? And so it just kind of threw me being, again, this thing that seemed like a negative. A lot of people would say, well, you're stuck at home by yourself a lot with two little kids. You don't have a car, but it actually was a way for me to build community. And then my son started the preschool in town. And then I, one of my other best friends, her son was at that preschool and I got to know her and her son is now one of my son's best friends. And then my community just got bigger and bigger. A lot of it was because I was just in it and didn't have cell phone service either. So my head was not down at a screen, but yeah. actually then I didn't even have a you smartphone. You were in it and you weren't working a nine to five. No. And so I you was were just, around. I was around and I was available. Yeah. And, um, and I also built a lot of important online community at that time too, because I didn't know any moms. I started blogging about being a mom and meeting other moms online. And so um, the need for community that I had, I started finding ways to build it and meet that need um, mm -hmm. by being present to my community and, you know, um, yeah, just saying hello to people and, you know, being willing to take that time <laughs> and not be in a rush. Well, and I find that, you know, if you have a kid or a dog, you can, it's, it's suddenly cool to talk to people you don't know, <laughs> like, you know, oh, hey, how old is she? You know, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's just an icebreaker. And I feel like we have so many social walls yes. that we have in, in this society. Um, I want to ask you about your creative group again. Mm -hmm. um, do you ever find that with such a diverse group of art forms, how does that, uh, like, how does that coexist? Like, how do you cultivate creativity across so many different um, interests? I think it's nice because um, sometimes ideas come to you because you're not in the box. You're not thinking in the same way. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's nice to find solutions sometimes from an unexpected place. Um, there's a lot of songs in my book. Um, maybe they would have been there anyway, but maybe because one of the women in my group was a singer and because I was starting to teach piano again, maybe that's why music played a higher role in my book. Maybe not. Maybe it's just chance. Maybe it would have always been there. But it's like there was this other person in my life more regularly that was kind of doing music and sharing the songs she was writing. Um, sort of rounds you out a little yeah. bit for, your, for yourself. And you're doing this for others, but it's actually giving back to you. And I think um, I think industries are getting better, indie music and indie film, about supporting each other. Uh -huh. But I think then there's also no um, competitive 
Yeah. Issues that can sometimes come up in creative groups. I think, again, uh, I've noticed it's a lot better in the indie film women communities that I'm a part of. Uh-huh. A lot of that that was definitely there when I first moved to LA 15 years ago, mm-hmm. where it was just like cutthroat and I'm not supporting another indie filmmaker because there's not enough pie and I need my piece and I don't care. And <laughs> it was old school. Yeah. Outdated. Outdated. Yeah. And now um, there's much more of a feeling of like, let's make this pie bigger, guys. Come yeah. on, let's do it together. Yeah. Um, but I think especially like when you're working with people or not even working, but spending time creatively with people that don't do the art you do. You learn cool things from them. Um, you think differently about your own art, and you don't have a competitive kind of component at all. It sort of flips the script a little bit when you do look at another artist's art form, and you kind of get this new, fresh approach where you enjoy. You use a new enjoyment out of something that maybe if you've been wearing a path down a certain art form for a long time, it feels like you have very little freedom because yeah. you, you've already tried that I've tried that it didn't work I tried that you know where it's like you come in something new for the first time and you're like the whole world is open I don't know what I'm doing but I like that that sounds good <laughs> you know yeah definitely well and I did um a poetry an online poetry lab in April uh-huh. um a woman through being a, a mom blogger that I met with her name is Amy Bowers and her site is mama scout and she did these does these incredible online labs and some of them are to be creative as a family which is really fun she has something called journal jam and it's all about being creative <laughs> as a family but her poetry one is it's just for adults and not everyone in it is a mom um everyone in it that I I believe is women um but it doesn't have to be that way it's just how it happens to be but every morning you would get uh a poem into your inbox and then maybe a prompt to go with it. Mm. And poetry used to not be my thing. And I've done the lab before and I never wrote, but this last recently April, I found myself writing poems all the time. Um, and I think it was really good because one of the things I struggled with in my novel, um, my editor was reading it and she's like, it's really visual, but novels can be so much more than visual. And I'm a filmmaker, so I think this novel reads a certain way because I think visually. Yeah. And so doing the poetry lab helped me dig into all the other descriptors and metaphor and simile and all the way poets write, which is, you know, different than novel writing. But it was good to do not novel writing, but really descriptive, rich, like metaphorical writing and to kind of access a different voice and a different writer skill and kind of like hone that skill uh, a little better. Mm-hmm. I was reading that one of the magic of books is that um, from a psychological perspective, if you read narrative fiction, it gives you the ability to put yourself in somebody's life experience in a way that you may not necessarily be able to live out in your own life. Mm-hmm. And so it uh, books are a way to foster compassion. Mm-hmm. And uniquely books, because I think movies do that too, but for some reason books just have, you, you become a part of the inner thought life of your characters. And um, so, you know, I feel like uh, fiction serves a very important role even especially because you're able to engage with it so deeply a lot of times because you know this is a work of fiction you know the character the characters that i'm reading they don't really exist they didn't really die you know but you get 
as emotionally attached, if not more, I think, to a work of fiction sometimes than you can to a, a real story that's that's you know maybe not your immediate family or yourself. And I think there might be a psychological reason for that. Maybe it's too much. You yeah. know, there's there's got to be human reasons why fiction and story are such an important part of our world. Yeah, the human experience. I mean, humans have been telling stories since before they had language. And we continue to do this. And I think that um, this is a practice that I think we need to bring back as a, as a part of all of our lives. Like you don't have to be a creative person in quotes to tell stories and to, you know, it's how we're processing the world around us and our kids do it so naturally. I mean, mm-hmm. just overhearing my eight year old son in the bathtub, he's got a whole <laughs> world going on in there and we don't even have real bath toys. We have like lids, like <laughs> bottle caps and he's created a whole world. And like, you know, at some point we lose that. Like we stop doing that. We stop telling stories. We stop, making up things we stop doing make-believe um Mm -hmm. but we don't have to you know we can all like tap into that whether it's sitting down on the carpet with our kids and playing legos with them or if we don't have kids it's taking photos sketching writing writing a song even if you don't sing well i don't sing well i write songs all the time because it's it feels good they're probably never going to be in the world for anyone else to hear i don't care (laughs) you know there's something about um telling stories and and processing things um in a way that's not processing things, you know, not in a therapeutic sense of like, I'm going to process this now, but no, Mm -hmm. I'm going to like go for a hike and, oh, look, this poem's coming in my head. Maybe I'll talk it into my phone. Maybe I'll write it down later. Maybe it just went through my head and that's all it is. But um, being open to that Being open to to letting it out, I think, you know, instead of trying to hold everything in. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we are always processing things, but maybe we're processing it by being grumpy and angry with all the people around us you know like that's not necessarily a way I try to be but it happens to everybody and so I think having an outlet even if you don't consider yourself craft worthy is what Mm -hmm. I would call it at a particular art form like poetry or whatever just the act of expression you know sometimes without reflecting that inner critic back at yourself too early I think is super is super duper important. I think you went through that with your book a little bit because if, if it, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you didn't start out as a novelist. No, this is my first novel and I kind of wish it weren't because it's a really hard novel to write and I've actually realized it's three books, not just one. Um, <laughs> and I didn't start out as a novelist and I thought The Leeches was going to be a film and then when I sat down to write it, it came out as a book. And I thought, well, this is just how I'm going to tell it then. And also way more accessible to, I mean, not that writing a novel is easy. It's not. I've been working on this for years. But um, when did you start? I would say my formal start was two summers ago. I Mm -hmm. went to New York. Again, for me, sometimes I need to just be away from my family and intensively engaged for a little bit um, to do this work. Um, I'm trying to change that, but that's been part of my process so far so two summers ago I went to New York was gone for 10 or 11 days and came back with a very rough first draft and so that's where I would say I really started um even though the idea of I have to do something around this topic is 15 years old the actual like okay I'm doing this is okay I'm starting a novel I'm writing a novel it Uh has a title it's happening that was two years ago and I've been battling my inner critic ever since, I think. (laughs) Well, I want to talk about that for 
a lot of it because yeah. actually that's a big hurdle for pretty much everybody I think who gets into any form of artistic expression is you start off uh, you know uh, in a new art form because you have this drive to do something and when you first start out you don't have tools yeah you have you haven't developed your processes but you want it to be good so you're sitting here, you're trying to write a, a paragraph and you want that paragraph to read the way you would want to read mm-hmm. and it live up to the story that you're trying to put together. And, uh, you know, perhaps, um, perhaps you don't even know where you're going with it yet. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, my story is so different now than when I started. Um, there's, you know, Shell is the lead character. She has a husband, she has a son. My first um, iteration, it was kind of bouncing between like what's happening with her, what's happening with the husband, what's happening with the son. And then Ramon, my my partner in all things, read it and he's like, I don't even care about those dudes. Like she's the one like and her story <laughs> reads and it's the one that's engaging and compelling. Like just do that. Yeah. Um. So I didn't know what I was doing at all. And I think, you know, with filmmaking, my first features utter failure I don't want anyone to see it so I think also not being afraid to fail like failure is a huge part of a successful creative practice but I also think having people in your corner um is really important I think I'm really lucky in that my life partner and my parenting partner is my biggest fan and believes in me more than I believe in me yeah and when my inner critic gets too loud um he's right there to cheer me on and not in a way that's like everything you write is good that's not helpful and that's not true but in a way of like this is worth something keep going I think that's the cheerleader you need is someone that's going to be like no keep going um and it doesn't have to be a life partner it could be a good friend and it could be a mentor yes but in your case uh it it is your life partner and you guys do have a very dynamic creative relationship together I've always wondered did you guys start out as creative partners first or did you start out as life partners and then sort of decide that this is the journey we're going to take together it's really interesting and you probably don't know this aspect of my story so um (laughs) he and i met while we were studying abroad in egypt um i know you know that but um we'd been together for many years and then i was in graduate school um for middle eastern studies and it was not working so we took time apart and what's interesting is during that time my thesis was on um Palestinian music and dance in the diaspora. So like in Mm -hmm. New Jersey, people that had never lived in Palestine never would, um, but they were doing traditional dance and music and how music and dance connect you to a place that you maybe can't be. And where were you studying? And I was at Harvard for that. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. So so I thought, wait, I'm just going to write about music and dance. That seems wrong. (laughs) Like we should be able to see and hear this. So I took my first filmmaking class. So I'm embarking on this process of what I thought was going to be documentary filmmaking Uh and really getting into it because I was realizing too, even if my thesis gets published, it's going to be read by like five other academics in a journal. Mm. If I make a dynamic documentary about dance and music, like people might see it, people might engage. Right. Um, And unbeknownst to me, at the same time, Ramon is starting to take acting classes he had taken a couple film classes in undergrad, so he's getting into film. So we're not hanging out at all at this point, but we're both doing film. Mm-hmm. And I think it was kind of the missing piece. When we came back and rekindled a friendship to see, could this go somewhere now that we've had this space? 
um, having a shared creative endeavor, even though we weren't working together on anything, felt like a missing piece that we needed in our relationship. Oh, wow. And we could kind of understand each other better. We already had this shared experience of having lived in the Middle East, and that was important. But then now we had another kind of shared thing. And so we, um, when I finished at Harvard, um, we invested all this money we didn't have, credit card debt on a camera and a <laughs> iMac, one of the big, not an iMac, a tower, like one yeah. of those giant silver towers they had back in the day. Um, cause we figured it was I still cheaper. Have mine. <laughs> yeah, we don't, but we figured it was cheaper than film school. Yeah. And so we shot a film and then we shoved all that equipment into his Toyota Camry and we drove across the country to LA to start our lives as filmmakers. Oh, wow. Um, so, and the film was terrible and we were so proud of it at the time, but it was awful. <laughs> um, but it's like, don't be afraid to fail, you know, and, and don't be afraid to, um, to try something you know, and, and find yourself somewhere you didn't think you'd land. Like I never thought I would be writing a novel and have just gone to Rwanda to do that. Um, but that's, that's where I am. You know, that's where I landed. So you teach piano. I do. And, uh, you teach children. Yes. And, um, so, you know, I, my experience when I first came to the piano was, you know, I had this music in my head and I just wanted to play it. Mm-hmm. And I was never very good at like practicing. <laughs> and, you know, I feel like, you know, a lot of people, you know, come into something like music because their parents say, well, you should learn an instrument. You should learn violin. You should learn. And they want them to sound good. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that is very counterproductive. And so I want to talk about your approach to teaching because I think it's actually really, really important. Yeah, I don't take that approach with my students. Um, I mean, I want them to sound good, but um, I really am focused on a very personalized approach of what does each child need? Um, One of my friends mentioned an interview with Lady Gaga where she's like, what's your driving question? You know, what are you trying to solve? What's the problem you're trying to solve for the world? And I realized 15 years in Cambodia, like, you know, I'm trying to figure out why as humans we can't end genocide. So wait, how does that fit into teaching piano? You know, well, I think there's something about being able to have everyone's identity honored, have everyone's needs met, have everyone understand how to listen to each other, how to hear something they're not used to hearing how to step outside of their comfort zone. And so I use teaching piano as that creative practice for me. It's to improve my listening skills. Am I listening to this child? What do they need from Mm -hmm. me? I have a child that she started lessons the week her mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. I have a very specific teaching relationship with her. Um, I happen to fall in her life at a certain time, you know, and so that's a very specific thing. I have another child that really struggles with anxiety. So we do some note reading, music reading. We do a lot of listening. It really helps him quiet his mind to listen to intervals, to identify ear training. Like that's his favorite part of the lesson. That's what he needs to like mm-hmm. still his mind. And so maybe he's not going to get a music scholarship. Maybe music is not going to be his career. But if he can learn how to quiet his mind through this piano lessons, like that's a life skill that he can use forever. You know, yeah. so I, well, and music is magic because is. music can really affect your mind and your body and your emotions and your whole state. I really feel like teaching children is 
the way one is a way or the way to help develop a compassionate society and the way we teach children what we model to them mm-hmm. helps to shift the imbalances in the world and i think a lot of maybe what is wrong with the world right now what could improve about the world is literally some of the short-sighted things that we do to children for children while they're in school and um i want to spend a moment talking about that so yeah yeah i've been um i've taught in lots of different capacities for a long time um my production company and my film festival had um, film education and then I've taught music on and off forever, um, like starting when I was 18, um, and have run after school programs and have worked in lots of different school settings. And I think something we're talking about already is the importance of creativity and creativity is not taught in our schools. It's not honored very well, hardly. Um, some schools do, but I think it's not a value. It's not valued. Um when I taught music at a public school recently, I only was there because the PTA had fundraised for it. So the school mm. hadn't budgeted, budgeted for it. And this is not a school that's low funding in general. It's in a an area that's fine financially, um, not a traditional low income setting. And this is not abnormal. There are lots of schools that don't have funding for music or art or any of the creative work, um, creative arts. It's not deemed important or valuable um but it's how children make sense of the world it's how grown-ups make sense of the world it's why movies and video games and music are the things most people spend their money on yeah experiencing these creative things so um it's important and it's why kids rush home after school often and do creative things if that's available to them mm-hmm. to I go think, play which is yeah. one of the most creative things you <laughs> <Yeah>. can do <laughs> just play and yeah. be with their legos or whatever let me just yeah. yeah play so i think um play and creativity should be valued more in our educational settings i think that they it need would to be yeah yeah i think it would build um just happier people mm-hmm. <laughs> and also and problem solvers i mean really we need problem solvers. That's what the world needs. Um, and so that's how you solve problems is through creativity. I'm actually reading a book on conflict resolution resolution. Um, my master's degree is in middle Eastern studies. I was focused on conflict a lot as I did that. And, um, conflict resolution is something important to me. And one of the things that's most interesting about this book is she talks about creativity, that that's what conflict resolution requires is creative thinking. Um, and so for me, it's all connected. Having a creative practice, doing creative work, teaching children a creative art, writing a novel about genocide, all of that actually fits together and makes sense for me because it's all about creativity and reducing conflict in the world. Like that's the broad stroke. And I think that's something as well that I struggled with when I was doing lots of different things, which is often the case when you're trying to make it as a creative person. <laughs> um is if I didn't have a through line, I felt too fractured. I felt too schizophrenic and I struggled and it didn't work. And then if I can find a way to have it all work in harmony, like I don't know very many creative people that earn their living just through their creativity. They have to also teach or do this or do that or work at a coffee shop, whatever it is. But I find if you can do that in a way where the day job, so to speak, feeds your creative practice or informs it or fits into your large vision for yourself, 
then it's easier. Then you aren't kind of like, I'm this person when I go to the office and then I'm this person at another time. It's like, I need to be one person that makes sense to me. Um, So finding a way for all that to fit together and um, then you're just living as an authentic self, you know, instead of like, I'm going to be this person now and then I'm going to be someone else. Like, how can you just be you all the time and still get your financial needs met, your family needs met, your creative needs met? It's possible. It's not always easy, but I think it is possible. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I haven't got a chance to talk to you about your trip. This is the first I've really seen you since you got back from Rwanda. Yeah. So let's just pretend we're sitting at the coffee shop and like fill me in on what that was, what that journey was for you. Yeah, Rwanda was um, really interesting. It was very um, challenging as an empath. Uh, Visited six genocide memorials could have visited more um it was i met amazing people it was really um interesting on multiple levels uh one thing was that writing is new for me being a novelist is new for me Mm -hmm. and um it surprised me that it's been yeah 15 years since i've traveled by myself as a woman which i used to do a lot um but i hadn't um other than up the coast of california earlier Mm -hmm. um a few months ago but overseas and I thought it would be different I thought there would be more women traveling by themselves now in 2018 but there really weren't I Mm. saw one other woman traveling by herself so everywhere I went people wanted to know why are you in Rwanda by yourself like what are you doing and so I had to claim that I was there doing research writing my novel I could have take said Mm. oh I'm just like seeing the sides because there's lots to see there people go there for different safari experiences for the gorillas for this or that and I could have been there for that or said Uh that but it was important for me to claim like I'm here working on a book I'm here doing research for my novel and so then sometimes people what's your novel about so I had to get better at my elevator pitch for my novel Uh better at claiming this work um so that was important I think to just like claim it and say I am this and Sort of, I think, especially as a woman, as a, as a woman, as a woman, um, <laughs> I think men do that more easily. My experience has been that men do that more easily and can have very little expertise in something and still claim it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas women, we think we need all of this uh, credential, all of this outside affirmation to claim something. And I actually had a friend say to me when I was thinking of getting a paid PhD, you don't need any more validation. Just do the thing you want to do. Like stop <laughs> thinking that you need to go get any more validation from anywhere and just do the work, like yeah. do the work you want to do. I mean, I mean, I was kind of meaning to ask you this. Do you ever feel or have you ever felt judged that you have a Harvard education <laughs> And that you're not on the track that somebody might expect for you of money and, uh, you know, working a, you know, Fortune 500 job and on and on and on. Like, what what was that like? For What is that like for, for you? I, I have felt judged. I judge myself sometimes, too. Like, hmm. every time I pay that student loan off, <laughs> should I be doing something? Or I say, like, did I, was that worth it? Um, am I using my degree? And then I have to remind myself that a degree, like, that degree was not about a certain job, you know, it was about a growth experience. I found film through that degree. Um, I learned a lot about myself. I learned that I didn't want to do peace and conflict resolution work. I didn't want to go work for the government. It's important to learn that and to not spend 10 years doing it. (laughs) And, you know, or I, I have, um, you know, my brother is worked for the government and has been doing it for longer than he wanted because he's close to retirement. He can't get out now. 
So that's a small price to pay if I look at it that way. You know, it's a small price to pay. And I met amazing people and I learned a lot about myself, about the world. Um, But I'm not financially reaping the benefits people that would typically associate with an Ivy League degree, for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, Well, it seems like you've scaled back. You know, you and Ramon both have kind of scaled back your idea of what's what's necessary to mm-hmm. keep up with the Joneses. You really you really do things a lot different. Like I, I kind of see a lot of the movement to stick closer to home and do less less commuting. Mm-hmm. And you have one car. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in Southern California. <laughs> and your your house is not big. No. Um, and you live in a community that's that's kind of off the beaten track that maybe a lot of people forget about because mm-hmm. I think it affords you, you've told me, like more, more financial freedom to reinvest in yourselves and into your, your work. Yeah. And um, which I think is inspiring. And so I think it's important to challenge your assumptions as well. That's why I asked about Harvard, because it's very easy to kind of take something that other people expect from you, especially like, well, Jen, you have so much potential. You could just admit (laughs) what you could be doing. But, you know, at what cost? Right. And you and I have talked about that, too. I believe at one point you were looking into getting a position like that. Yeah. And what did you do to, you know, make that make that pivot instead of doing that? What sure. Was- I think um, for me, the cost is always happiness and time. Um, and I have a friend. <laughs> she's like, you are the most covetous person of time that I've ever met. And she's met a lot of people. And she's also went to Harvard. Um She's like, you just, you will not give up your time for anything. Like your time is your, is my treasured resource. Other people, it's the money or it's the cloud or it's the prestige. And that's fine if that's what works for them. But for me, like my most valuable resource is my time. And so when I've looked at maybe working full time, um, often it means I'm going to have to commute. So I'm going to be away from my family for a very long time. I'm not going to have time to play the piano, to write, to do something that I want to do for my creative practice. I'm not going to have time to spend with my community in the ways that I want to. So for me, those have not been trades I've wanted to make. Mm-hmm. That um, So I've made different choices and I've scaled back my life in a way that works for me because it affords me my time to spend the way that I want to spend it. It means I can go to Rwanda. I didn't, and I had a lot of people ask me that too. Like, how are you in Rwanda for two weeks? How are you away for 18 days? Like, how'd you get the vacation time? I was like, I don't have to ask anyone for vacation time. Like, that's, <laughs> that's how amazing. I did it. <laughs> like, wow. Like, you know, and so um, maybe if I was quote unquote using my Harvard degree, I, I'd be having to, you know, bank up vacation time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Tell me the story, the sights and sounds. Sure. Tell me about your trip. What were you yeah. know when you got on the plane, and you say goodbye to your kids. You know, yeah. I think that's where the scene opens. Well, I got on a plane in Burbank on May thirty first at nine o'clock at night. I landed in Rwanda on June third at eight a.m. Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> it was a long journey. Um, I spent the day in New York. My first day, I did a red eye to New York. Um, and I was meeting with a filmmaker, another mom filmmaker. And what's so funny is I'm taking the train in to meet her. And I've only met her once before, like five years ago or now maybe three years ago in L.A. And I'm waiting for the subway and I'm looking and I think I'm like this woman in front of me that I can only see the back of. I think that's Jenica. I think that's the filmmaker I'm supposed to have coffee with. 
No way. So I like go to her Facebook profile <laughs> to like check her picture. And when I'm confirmed, like, yeah, that's her. I'm like, Jenica. And she turns around. So that was like, and I tell that story because that was the trip. Like that everything like just kind of like opened up. Every door wow. opened up the way that it should on the whole trip. So like I saw her, I spent the day with my sister. And, um, you know, from there I flew to overnight to Paris, had a day in Paris from there to Kenya to Rwanda. Um, but then in Rwanda as well, um, well, I kind of collapsed because I'd flown three red eyes. I hadn't slept through the night anywhere except an like airplane. Three, three or four days. Yeah. Three nights on airplanes. So wow. my first day was just collapsing. Huh. <laughs> um, but the next day I was going to the memorial, um, the genocide museum and I go out and there's two young women that are also going there. So we just share a ride together. I spend five hours there, meet the community engagement officer, um, meet someone else. You know, um, the next day I have coffee with a woman who was kind of a friend of a friend of a friend, you know how it happens. Um, and what really gave me chills is she wanted to tell me her cousin's story and she wanted me to meet her cousin, but he's very busy and the timing didn't work out. So she's telling me her cousin's story of how he survived the genocide. And um, it's literally a scene I had in my book that I had cut out of my book because a medical professional was like, that's not realistic. And so I'm telling her this. And she said, I don't care what science tells you. I don't care what medicine tells you. Like, this is what happened. Wow. And you have to put this in your book. Do you mind me? Do you mind me asking? No. What happened? So her, um, her cousin was a baby when the genocide happened and his mother was killed and a man who had killed many people found him still suckling on his mother, um, still trying to breastfeed. And as she describes it in that moment, his humanity returned to him. Like this man who had killed other people in that moment, he took this baby at the risk of his own life and hid this baby in his home for two weeks and then got this baby to someone with a boat who smuggled the baby out of the country. Um, And that's how her cousin survived. And when people were returning to Rwanda, this kid now, he's a child now, he's coming back and there were 30,000 orphans at least. And so there's this process of they didn't want people in orphanages. They wanted to find people if they could. So they were like, does anybody remember this kid? Oh, wow. <laughs> and the boat man remembered, like, yes, this is the kid that I smuggled out. Like, I remember this kid. I remember these eyes. Oh, my God. And so he said, this dude gave him to me. Well, that dude was now in prison serving 25 years for the atrocities he had committed. and um, for, for murder. For, for mass murder. murdering many people. Wow. But saving this baby. He had saved this baby, but murdered many other people. So this, um, as this, this child got older, he went and spoke, um, on behalf of this man and said, he saved my life though. Like he saved my life and his sentence was reduced from 25 to 10 years. He's no longer in prison and they spend holidays and family dinners together because for this man now, that was his only family. Like no one else survived in his immediate family and this was the man that saved him and took him in so um it just it blew me away and it was this thing of the way 
this man is not all good or not all evil. He's a person that was put in a certain situation and did certain things. And that what I learned a lot from people I met in Rwanda is that we each have a capacity for incredible forgiveness and love and goodness. And we all have a capacity for pain to cause pain to others and circumstances control what aspect of us comes out and when, you know, and there's not a conception of someone's good or someone's bad, um, which countered a lot of what I, you know, a lot of the learning around the Holocaust is kind of like, well, there's just this dark evil in the world and that's it. But no, <laughs> yeah. you know, there, there is both and people are complex and people find themselves in situations where they do things you can't imagine. And sometimes those things are good things you can't imagine. And sometimes they're awful things you can't imagine um, because they're in a certain situation and you can't judge that because you've not been there. Um, so it was just, but it just blew me away because I, I, the part of that I had was, was a baby on a mom's breast. And the doctor said, but there wouldn't be milk left. That really wouldn't happen. And this woman was like, you have, please tell me you'll put that back in your book. She's like, <laughs> you have to put it back in your book because these circumstances defy science. They defy medicine. They defy our normal understandings of what humans are. Like they defy all of that. And that's what you have to share in your book. Um, I also had a lot of anxiety about being a white American woman writing about genocide. Hmm. And if I had a right to do that. Um, even though I had felt so important, so desperate of a need to do it, even if no one ever reads it, I just felt this need. And this same woman and a couple of other people that I met that were Rwandan said, if one person reads your book and decides to do anything in the world to prevent genocide, it's worth it to me. Hmm. So write your book. Um, I think having lived through this atrocity, um, Many, many Rwandans are like, we don't care if anybody's doing anything to make sure no one else suffers the way that our people have suffered, then good. Go with God. Like, do it. Because yeah. whatever you can do, whatever <laughs> drop anybody can put in the bucket yeah. to stop these kind of things. Like, they're like, they just want it in the bucket, well, you know, because they've lived through it. Changing the world one person at a time. Yeah. You, you may not influence someone at the top, but you might influence the person next to you and you may not even know when you do that. Yeah. And um, I think that in terms of compassion and com compassionate community, I think that is an important empowering concept to realize that you being the singular locus of your sphere of influence, be it how big or small, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter because that influence ripples out into other circles that affect the world. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was that was why my master's was in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and um, I couldn't stay there. I couldn't stay in that work. It was, it was too hard um, for me personally, especially at the time. I didn't really have the tools as an empath to handle being in that work. And it wasn't my conflict. Um, right. I wasn't going to solve that. Yeah. Someone, the people whose conflict that is needed to solve that and they will, you yeah. know, and I was given a book, Pieces Every Step, by Thich Nhat Hanh, by a friend of mine, and that's when the light went off. I'm drawn to this because I have an innate need to be a peacemaker. 
But that does not mean I have to go there. Like there are opportunities to be a peacemaker every day in my world. Right. Where and you there are. is plenty of conflict resolution to resolve. <laughs> and there's plenty of um, people that need love, yeah. you know. And I think that's the other thing in teaching. I when I would run up against a child with an issue that I didn't know how to solve. Um, I finally just came back to the mantra, when in doubt, give more love, period. And that's now how I live my life. (laughs) Like, you know, if I don't know how to fix a situation, just if you just pour more love onto a situation, you probably can't make it worse. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, it's so true. And love is the guiding light you can apply to literally every situation. And it, permeates every even the the nuances of what you're doing you know you could mm-hmm. say you know somebody can give you your coffee and you'd be like thanks you know because yeah. that's what you say no thanks you know okay whatever or you could take a moment and express gratitude for that person and that they're taking the time to serve you even if it's just their job you right, know right you know just just taking it taking it back from genocide and just getting human yeah, with it for a moment i exactly. mean i go and i you know i pay for a coffee and yeah there's there's the people that built that company and whatever but you know the person the person who serves me my coffee got up and ate breakfast this morning and probably had a good morning or a bad morning right and just that reflection of how do i apply love to just the littlest things it can change situations from the littlest to even the most challenging. Absolutely. And a lot of times, you know, you see this in, in, in children all the time. A lot of times the people who act out the most are the people with the deepest need mm-hmm. for, for love and attention and a recognition and acknowledgement of you are human. I see you. And you have value. Yeah. And I think um, the creative works that we resonate with are the works in which you can feel the love. And sometimes it doesn't have to be a rom-com. I think when I watched Black Panther, I can tell everybody loved working on that film. <laughs> like, you know, it was like this was everyone's dream job. Yeah. So it's not just a fun film to watch. It's like that love just comes through on screen and then you sometimes watch other films and you don't know what's off and then maybe when you're in the industry you read something and you know there was a lot of nastiness going up on the set you Mm -hmm. know because maybe you have an inside vibe and you're like that's what's off it's not that the screenplay's bad it's not that the technique wasn't done right everybody knew what they were doing but there was no love you know um when we create work creatively um and love what we're doing and love the people we're doing it with. And I think it just makes all the work better. Well, know? it's like the love is in the cake. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's like they use that example of baking. Like, you know, when mom made it, it's just got something extra special because there's that love. And yeah. another contrast to that is that it's a lot of times, you know, somebody's journey in going through humanity and difficulty and struggle and hardship is a lot of times, you know, when you say a film had heart, it's because you watch the transformation that a character goes through and how they find love in the most unlikely places and how they learn to accept love and accept themselves Mm -hmm. or others through that transformational experience of being seen, of seeing someone. Um, Wow. Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> <laughs> if you've never read Thich Nhat Hanh or if you're someone who 
um, is like, I can't do Buddhism. He's not making you Buddhist, first of all, but um, he's very accessible. And I think for creative people, I think his work is really relevant because it's about being present to your moment. Yes. Being present to the opportunities in front of you, to the peace that you can be, but also just to your moment. And I think a positive creative practice requires that, that we can be present to our practice. Yeah. For me, playing the piano is that it's both meditative and mindful. So it's like, I can't do it unless I'm present to it, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So there's something nice about that about, and I think that's why even if you do a creative art professionally or not, it's like just presence, just being present to only whatever thing it is that you're doing, playing the piano, drawing, whatever, just like shutting everything else off and just being present to that. There's something beautiful about that. Very well said. Bones. We all have them. 206 or 270, depending on your age. Mostly we take them for granted, unless we are injured. We fracture a bone, we suffer from arthritis, osteoporosis. Then we notice those bones, their stiffness, their weakness, the way their frailty changes our body, affects our way of life. Yet bones take on a different, particular significance after mass atrocities. In Cambodia and Rwanda, they are on display skulls and limbs in glass cases, smashed faces here, ruptured eye sockets there, bullet holes in foreheads, cracks from machete blows. They are significant. They are proof. They bear witness to those who would deny. They haunt some and bring closure to others. It is hoped that they will help to right a wrong, bring some accountability, acknowledgement, a renewed commitment to a future that is different. I look at those bones and see a cycle of violence that continues. Patterns of hatred that repeat, divisions that grow wider, distrust that is sown. Too many are in pain, too many are full of rage, too few are willing to take responsibility for the past. It is always someone else's fault, and we are not our brother's keepers. We live only for ourselves, victim to a deep-seated belief in scarcity not brave enough to embrace the possibility of abundance, the joy of generosity, the risk of unconditional love. The bones dug out of mass graves, treated, cleaned, locked in a display box. What are they saying to us? What are they saying to me? What are they asking of us? How can we live a life they will find worthy? How can we help their souls? finally find peace. That was a poem from Jen's notebook called Bones. Thanks for joining us. You can follow Jen on Facebook and Twitter at Indie Jen Fisher or follow her blog at The Good Long Road. Think 10 Media Group is her production company with Ramon Hamilton and Indie Jen Fisher is spelled I-N-D-I-E-J-E-N-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. First-time listeners to the podcast get a bonus episode. Go to thelanguageofcreativity.com forward slash new listener. I'm Stephen Levitt, and this is the Language of Creativity Podcast. 